Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Land Ministries. I want to welcome you to our program. We are in a study of the book of Jeremiah. We call our program The Expectations of Jeremiah, dealing with all of his different prophecies of his book. Uh, we are at chapter 37 in this program. One of the things I didn't, uh, haven't really mentioned in previous programs, uh, probably should have mentioned, but I didn't. But let me go ahead and cover it now. Baruch, uh, the man, the scribe who helped record the book for Jeremiah, the way the book is laid out, particularly when it comes to Jeremiah interacting with various kings, and there were four different kings that Jeremiah dealt with, kings of Judah. He doesn't necessarily lay it out in a narrative or chronological order. Back a couple of chapters ago, we were hearing conversations between Jeremiah and King Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king. In our last program, we were dealing with the king that was just before Zedekiah, and we were dealing with some of the stories that goes on with it. This will clear itself up here in chapter 37. You're going to be able to get to see the sequence uh, kind of properly because I think Baruch at this point decided, hey, I'm, I want to correct a little bit of the narrative here uh, for us. In each case, this, the, and, and I think the reason why the book was written in that manner is because Jeremiah's message never changed. He was, uh, his main message was warning the kings of Judah and the people of Jerusalem that Babylon was going to come, King Nebuchadnezzar was going to come, and that Babylon was going to defeat Israel and defeat uh, Jerusalem and the kings of them, and that the people were going to be going into captivity. Now, Jeremiah's actual length of all of his prophecy was over the course of 40 years. It just works out there were four different kings during that time. So uh, it's really the same central message. And we're going to read in this next chapter uh, kind of a poignant moment uh, that is going to begin the relationship with Zedekiah, even though we've heard about Zedekiah in previous chapters. And again, it's these different features of of how Jeremiah expressed it to the people. If you remember in earlier uh, uh, episodes that we've talked about how the Lord said, hey, Jeremiah, why don't you go stand at this gate and then speak to the people that come in at this place? Uh, why don't you write a scroll, have Baruch go in and read it here at this place? Uh, why don't you go to this location and why don't you go and prophesy there? And in the course of his life, uh, not only did he go and prophesy what the Lord told him to say, and, but he was specifically dispatched in different ways in different places uh, to offer up the pro prophecy for it. Going back to my original introduction of Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah is considered to be what we call a word prophet. God actually spoke the words to him to then go speak. It wasn't just visions and then uh, he repeated to you what the vision is, and it's subject to some kind of interpretation. Uh, anytime that Jeremiah saw examples, and that God would go an example, he would actually say, for example, go to a potter's house and watch what the potter does. 
or go to this place and have this man buy this land and get the deed and put it in a clay jar. Um, it was actual physical things that would take place. Then the Lord would speak to him about what he had seen to give him the message that he was then to give to other people. And one of the things I hope that you have grasped here in the study of the book is that God used Jeremiah in a whole variety of ways to try to find some way to reach the ears and the hearts of the people of his day and trying to get them to understand what was getting ready to take place. If I could for the moment, let me draw a parallel. This is exactly what we find about the prophecies of the end of the age. Um, a lot of people think there's just a couple of key prophecies about the end of the age and the coming of the Lord. Boy, that would be a huge mistake if you drew that conclusion. The fact of the matter is that virtually every prophet in the Bible talks about the second coming in some form or fashion. <clears throat> talks about the coming kingdom. It talks about the day of the Lord. Talks about the events that will take place with the final generation. And repeated, whole books are dedicated to that subject. Uh, and they're given both uh, Old Testament passages as well as New Testament passages. And they're given in a variety of ways. Some prophets had visions. Some prophets were said to do this. Even the Messiah himself came to speak these things. And when I study, when I go through Jeremiah and see all the ways that God attempted to try to speak to um, the house of Judah and to the kings of Judah as to what was going to transpire and what they needed to do uh, to interact with that information and turn that situation around, we see the same kind of thing taking place, uh, only there's one minor significant change. Whereas in Jeremiah's day, he's appealing to the people to change the outcome events. When we come to the prophecies of the second coming, none of the prophecies are given in such a way as to, oh, by the way, if you repent, if you turn back to me, I'll delay my coming. It just flat out says the coming is coming. And it says, you need to repent because this is definitely going to happen. And there's a certain degree of inevitability that begins to take shape now here, especially with King Zedekiah, where Jeremiah is taking off the table about repent, Judah, and that way you can avoid the problem uh, with Babylon. In fact, you're going to hear of an incident during King, um, uh, the earlier king, when the Babylonians actually came and laid siege to Jerusalem, but they withdrew and, and uh, people are going to accuse Jeremiah of being false at that point uh, because he'd been prophesying that Babylon would come. The, 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 and in our day, we have mockers uh, who are saying, hey, where's the promise of the second coming? You know, we've heard all these different things and so forth, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and things are going on just as they had before. And you people who believe in the second coming, you're all crazy. And they're going to treat us just like the same way they treated Jeremiah. There are tremendous parallels in trying to understand prophetic literature, how God actually does things, how he actually is, shows mercy to us and gives he's long-suffering, and, and he wants to make sure that every person that can possibly get into the kingdom gets in there. And so we, we can learn a lot from this book about how God works with Jeremiah to his people 
that will tell us a lot about the days that we live in. With that as our introduction, let's turn to chapter 37, and let's begin there. Now, if you remember in the last portion, we were talking about Tim, the previous king, Joachim. Now it says, verse 1, chapter 37, Now Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in place of Coniah, the son of Joachim. It wasn't the son of Joachim, it was Zedekiah who was appointed to be king. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he had spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Yet King Zedekiah sent Yehukel, Yehuka. no, forget it, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, forgive me. Please forgive me for butchering up all these names. Part of this is transliteration. You know, sometimes you have to see the actual Hebrew name to get it right. These are transliterated names into the English, and you're trying to catch all the vowel sounds and so forth. Um, and and uh, Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, Please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. Now, Jeremiah was still coming in and going out, among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who had been besieging Jerusalem, heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. So let me make sure that you understand kind of what's being described here. In the previous king, the Babylonians came and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah had warned the kings of Judah, don't make an alliance with Egypt, which was another power down to the south. Egypt and Babylon didn't get along with each other, and they wanted to tangle. Later on, they do tangle, and Egypt loses. Um, so don't rely on Egypt. Rely on the Lord. And But they did. They made this kind of an alliance with the Egyptians, and so when the Egyptians heard about the siege of Jerusalem, why they brought up their Pharaoh, brought up his army, supposedly to honor the agreement they had put, well, as soon as the Babylonians knew that the Egyptians were on the way, they knew they didn't have adequate forces to continue to lay siege to Jerusalem and do battle with the, Chaldean, with the Egyptians because the Egyptians were coming with their whole army. The Babylonians had only come with enough elements to take care of, of um, Judah. So they withdraw. Now, before we go any further, can you imagine what was probably going on within Jerusalem with the people who didn't like Jeremiah? Jeremiah had been prophesying all this time, the Babylonians are going to come, going to capture Jerusalem. Lo and behold, they did come, but the Egyptians showed up and they withdrew, and so the city didn't fall to the Chaldeans, didn't fall to the Babylonians. And so, obviously, Jeremiah, you're a false prophet. Not understanding that there can be many iterations and things can happen later. Many of the prophets of Israel um, were slain by the people of Israel. And the reason they were was because they would prophesy of certain great things that would take place, and in the course of their lifetime, some of these things didn't happen. 
like, for example, a whole bunch of prophecies about the Messiah. Like, for example, a whole bunch of prophecies about the day of the Lord when the Messiah will establish his kingdom. Uh, like, for example, the prophecy that when the Messiah comes, he will gather all of the scattered exiles of Israel and bring them back to the land. When Yeshua showed up and he didn't make that happen because that wasn't supposed to happen until Judah went into worldwide captivity and there was supposed to be some period of time, the age of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles was to happen. But when they didn't see that, then they presume that the prophecy they've heard is incorrect. Hey, it didn't happen the way you said it would happen. Uh, therefore, you're false. Okay? Sometimes when you're talking to God's people, especially to people who don't like the message you have, that they are going to twist your words. They are going to create imaginative complaints against you and to do anything they can to discredit you, especially if they don't like the conclusion of your teaching and it doesn't line up with what they want. And, and the same thing is going to happen to Jeremiah here. You know, he has been talking about Babylon is going to come, going to lay siege. Well, Babylon did come, but they didn't defeat Jerusalem. Uh, the Egyptians came up, and this is what happened with the previous king. So obviously Jeremiah is a false prophet. And obviously they hate him. They don't want to hear from him anymore and, and things like that. The only thing that I have really specifically ever prophesied, let me go ahead and just offer this personal note. The only thing I've ever specifically prophesied and said, thus says the Lord, in other words, this is what the Lord told me to tell you, is specifically this statement. When you see the altar get rebuilt, when they rebuild that altar on the Temple Mount, the one that the prophecy speaks of, the one that gets shut down and is the start of the Great Tribulation, I realize there's a lot of people who don't yet understand in their faith how altars are still an important part of our faith, that they don't understand the role of animal sacrifice. They don't have any idea what a daily sacrifice is. Yet those are the very things that God is going to use as the start point for the Great Tribulation. And it's not so much that you um, uh, have to necessarily understand all of this, but there's one thing that's very clear. The Antichrist is definitely going to be opposed to that altar and those sacrifices. And it will be his position to stop them. And in fact, the prophecy says he will be successful in stopping the daily sacrifice, and that will be the start of the Great Tribulation. If you, as a Christian today, Maybe you still believe in the theology of that the Messiah was the final sacrifice and we don't need altars and so forth. And there's a lot of Christians that hold to that theology and that's what they've been taught. If when you see this altar getting set up, just as the prophecy says, then let me offer this warning to you. And this is from the Lord, from the Lord. Do not speak against that altar. If you do, whether you intended to or not, your voice has now joined with the voice of the anti-Messiah to stop that sacrifice. Let me go ahead and just tell you flat out, there is no way that can be the right decision on your part. 
If you find yourself agreeing with the anti-Messiah, it's contrary to your faith. Now, I wish I had more time to get you all on Torah study and teach you properly about altars and sacrifices and how they really have a part. <coughs> but short of that, I have warned, don't speak against the altar. If you need to, just be neutral. Just sit back, watch what happens. Watch the prophecy unfold. I believe that as you see the prophecies fulfilled, you'll get more understanding and you'll begin to understand what's going on and you'll hold to what the Lord has said. That can't be wrong. If you're saying what the Lord has said, it, that is the right position to be in. And I have specifically added to that and I said, if, I, if you're a believer and, and I know you personally, and when the altar gets shut down, uh, I won't stand within 50 feet of you if you have spoken against that altar. And let me tell you why. Because the first judgment in the Great Tribulation is not the seal judgments. The first judgment is not God starting to judge the world. The first judgment is on the household of faith. God is going to clean house on his house. Uh, that's a little coined phrase, clean house on his house. And it's from Ezekiel chapter 9 that when that angel goes out to seal the 144,000, there's six other angels that go out that will be judging all of those people who participated in the abomination of desolation. That means those that rejected the altar and agreed to its cessation. They will be judged. And... Um, I don't believe you're going to be around for the Great Tribulation. You know, I believe that if you can't get this straight from the very beginning as to who the altar belongs to and what God is doing and what he has prophesied to say, and you find yourself contrary from the very beginning of the Great Tribulation, that you're going to be judged. <coughs> Thus, Peter says, judgment comes first to the household of faith. Um, that is the prophecy that I've said, I've warned. Uh, if we draw a parallel here to Jeremiah, let us now continue on in this chapter. And you're going to see how the message doesn't change with Jeremiah. That he continues to stick with the same prophecy that was from the very beginning of his ministry. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army has come out for your assistance and is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Egyptians are going to go home. They're not going to stay here and protect you. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city and they will capture it and they will burn it with fire. Wasn't going to happen on the first time the Chaldeans, but it will happen again. And this is the dynamic of what's going to take place. The Egyptians are going to go back, and Jerusalem will fall. The Chaldeans will also return. Verse 9 Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from, uh, from us, and uh, for they will not go. Um, and if, even if you had defeated the entire army of the Chaldeans who were fighting against you, 
there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. Now that one's really an interesting statement. Had you been successful against the Chaldeans and you had wounded every one of their soldiers, I'm here to tell you they're coming back and they're going to burn this city with fire. If it looked like you had completely defeated them, I mean, because I'm certain that those in Judah felt, well, we beat the Babylonians. You know, the Egyptians came up to our aid. It looks like we beat the, the, the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is saying, if you had in fact wounded every man, that still won't prevent them from coming and burning the city with fire. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourself, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away. All right, so verse 11. Now it happened when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some property there among the people. And while he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard whose name was Iraha, uh, Ira Yah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was going there, and he arrested Jeremiah the prophet, saying, you are going over to the Chaldeans. In other words, this is when they said, okay, let's get rid of Jeremiah. You know, he prophesied falsely. So they arrested him. Um, verse 14, but Jeremiah said, a lie, I am not going over to the Chaldeans. Yet he would not listen to him, so he was arrested, and he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. So it's a false statement and a false lie that was made against Jeremiah. They said, hey, you know, Jeremiah didn't prophesy successfully about the Chaldeans, so he's planning on going over and joining them. They're going to punish Jeremiah on the word of this guy who said, oh, he's sneaking over to the Chaldeans. He's a spy. He's going to go over and join the Babylonians, which wasn't true at all. And we're going to see the consequences that falls out of this situation. Uh, from it. Um, then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him and put him in jail in the house of uh, Jonathan the scribe, which they had made, had made into the prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is, the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. Now King Zedekiah sent and took him out, and in his palace the king secretly asked him and said, is there a word from the Lord? I love this part. Literally what Zedekiah is going, you know, I did you a favor. I got, I got you out of that prison. Is there anything good that will come out of that? that do you have a word from the Lord for me? Jeremiah says, there is. There is a word from the Lord for you. Then he said, you will be given into the hand of the king of the Babylon. Oh, that wasn't the word he was expecting. Oh, oh no, there is a word from the Lord, but it's the wrong word, you know, for it. Verse 18, moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, in what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? Now, Jeremiah is making his defense. What crime did I commit? Tell me what the crime is and the reason why I've been incurring all this trouble from you people. 
Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come up against you or against this land? But now, please listen. O my lord the king, please let my petition come before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, that I may not die there. Then the king Zedekiah gave commandment, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse, and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all of the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Essentially what Jeremiah said was, don't put me back to the place where they put me in prison because I'll die. Put me in another place where I can still live. And so that's what Zedekiah did. He put him in a, in a prison, but he made sure that he had adequate food and that he would, he would live and um, he would be able to survive. All right, chapter 38. Now, uh, Zephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gadaliah, the son of Pashur, and Eukal, uh, the son of Shelemiah, and all these other fathers and sons and so forth, uh, heard the word that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. So Jeremiah is saying to the people, he said, look, there is a way for you to survive this. But you're going to have to leave here and you're going to go have to have to submit to the Chaldeans. You're going to have to submit to them. Um, verse 3, thus says the Lord, the city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. So now, specifically, uh, Jeremiah is now prophesying directly to the people how they can be delivered from it. But of course, this is a kind of a negative message. You know, it's not helping morale, shall we say. And so the other leaders are saying he's discouraging the men of war. Uh, you know, this is going to be our demise even further. You know, we need to um, lay hands on him. So verse 5, so King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah, cast him in the cistern of the king's son, which was the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud. Jeremiah sank into the mud. He's not in a prison, not in a guardhouse. They stuck him in a well, a well with no water. But there was mud down there. You know, you ever heard the expression, a stick in the mud? Jeremiah became a stick in the mud. And there was no way to climb out. And there's no hope for him in this place. They, they don't kill him, but they put him in a pit, which is the same thing as going into death. You know that they put Yeshua in a pit? I don't want to deal with it. Let's put him in a pit so we don't have to deal with him. Well, there's a day coming when Jeremiah is going to come out of, the, out of this thing uh, because he doesn't die there. Uh, then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, say, Take thirty men from under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. 
So Abed-Melech took the men under his authority, went into the king's palace and the place beneath the storeroom, and took there from worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Abed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn-out clothes and rags under your armpits uh, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did. So they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. So he came out of the pit. The thing that I find rather interesting uh, about this particular scripture is about the, the work that they did to help Jeremiah to come out of the pit. They went and got old clothing and rags to be a buffer, and they put those under his arms. Um, and so that the rope that was tied around him, that was around his chest and under his arms, so that it would basically hold him and wouldn't further injure him as the rope would pull him up by his shoulders and, and tighten and constrict onto his chest, that they had given him a padding so that the rope didn't choke in so far, that it would, uh, all of these, this superfluous um Clothing would be a buffer. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm glad they were being kind of kind to him to get him out of there that way. I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't expect him to build, tie a bow knot, put one foot in it, you know, and hold on to the rope and then pull him up. They knew that he was basically incapacitated and weak, and they, but they came up with a way to be able to bring him up out of there. Um, and here's the thought that I have um, had with regard to this. Um, when Yeshua went into the grave, he, did, he no longer was alive. I mean, I mean he really was dead, and there w- he had no capacity to be raised up in and of by himself. It is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that raised him up from the pit. He was assisted by God to bring him up. And we're seeing this picture of him being raised from this pit by the thought, the care, uh, the compassion, and, and uh, of these men that are delivering him out of that place. And I'm thinking that the Messiah probably experienced a tremendous compassion from his Father and from the Holy Spirit when he too was lifted up. By the way, the reason why I mention that is because I have discovered in the course of my life that when the Lord has lifted me up and raised me up from difficult things, there's always been a marked area where I could sense God's compassion. I could sense his mercy. I could sense him being gracious to me. I could sense that he's making up the difference to make it possible for me to be raised up. And the kindness shown by these men to Jeremiah is reflective, I think, of God's kindness toward us and toward the Messiah on on how he knows how to raise us up. And even when we have no strength, even when we have no capability to assist ourselves in it, somehow he finds a way to do it in a kind and um, um, kind way uh, for us. Um, verse 14, 
Then King Zedekiah sent, had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance, that is the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask uh, something of you. Do not hide anything from me. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. I mean, that, what a truthful statement that is. I mean, you know, if I tell you the truth, you're probably going to kill me. And if I tell you the truth, and you're, you're not going to listen to me. What, why would you want to ask me anything? <clears throat> but King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives, who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live, and this city will not be burned with fire, and you and your household will survive. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from its hand. Then King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, lest they give me over into their hand, and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I'm saying to you, that it may go well with you, and you may live. But if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which the Lord has shown me. Then behold, all the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon, and those women will say, Your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were sunk in the mire, they turned back. And they will bring out all your wives and your sons, the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of the Babylonians, and this, citizen, this city will be burned with fire. He asked Jeremiah, tell me the truth. What's really going to happen? Jeremiah gets an agreement with him that I'm, I won't be killed if I tell you the truth. Okay? Won't be killed. All right, I'm going to tell you the truth. It would be in your best interest, Zedekiah, walk right outside the gate, go right up the officers of the Babylonians and surrender yourself. Well, he's afraid. And although he has received good counsel from the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, who has definitely been proved to be a prophet, He's not going to follow his counsel. I, you know, at this point, you got to ask yourself, why? Why won't he relent? Well, you know, the same question can be asked a lot of us. There are times when we see people who they know what is the right thing to do, and they just won't do it. And it's tragic. Um, when, when, when we see it, we, we, there's human stories of people who get themselves into an unbelievable mess. And it's explained to them simply what they need to do to get it turned around. And they won't do it. One of my uh, uh, shows that I watch once in a while, I don't watch it faithfully, I just, I'm scandal, uh, channel skipping through. And every once in a while, I'll see the, the show Cops, where they got the police officers pull the car over and 
The ones that are always tragic to me is the ones who are, you know, the people in the thing have got dope and they got drugs and they're all drugged out and, and, uh, and they're getting themselves in all kinds of trouble. And you hear the cops say to them every time, you know, hey, you know, get some help. Uh, you can turn this around. Don't, don't, don't do this again. Don't, you know, learn from this, you know, and so forth. Do the people do it? No. And in fact, I've seen some of the programs where the cops pull somebody over and they say, I know you. I pulled you over earlier for the same deal, and here you are again. You, I, I told you then, and, and you're still doing it, huh? And, you know, I don't know what it is, the morbid feeling I have. Why do I keep watching this? I mean, it's the same story over and over again. You know, I get to see the cops wearing their nice, smart uniforms. They pull the car over, you know. Same people get out of the car, same got the same problems, you know. I watch the police follow their procedures and so forth, and it, it's the same basket case they've got to take to jail. And uh, so why do I keep watching that? I mean, what, what else am I going to learn from this? Well, it's it, what you're really observing is humankind, uh, real behavior of real human beings. I wish it wasn't so, but this is part of the disruption in the cosmos, this is what the enemy brought when he brought sin into the world and darkness and death. And, and we see the effects of sin. We, we see it, it, it's out to kill us. And I guess the best answer that we can come up with for is, Lord, you know, help me. You know, have mercy on me. Don't let me go down that path. You know, keep me in the light. Keep me, keep me clean. Keep me, keep me doing that which is right. In, in your eyes so that I don't have to incur the life and the path that they're on. And so I always thank the Lord that I've decided to um, obey the law and be a good person and to not participate with others who violate the law and do those kinds of things. It's kept me out of trouble and I have a life. And instead of, and I thank God for my life, you know, that he's treated me good and that I've been able to live and, and uh, prosper and go on. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no man know about these words and you will not die. But if officials hear that I have talked with you and come to you and say to you, tell us now what you said to the king and what the king said to you, do not hide it from us and we will not put you to death. Then you are to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. So he reported them in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded, and they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. Now that's an interesting twist. Um, do you think that's the first time that a politician has ever come up with a scheme on how to cover his tracks so he doesn't get in trouble with other politicians? Do you think that goes on today? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the kind of nonsense that goes on all the time.
Is that a righteous thing that Zedekiah has done? No, it's actually a continuation of the dumb things that he has done. The only thing that was good out of the deal was that Jeremiah said, okay, if you're not going to kill me for it, then I'll comply. And uh, Jeremiah lives. As a result, Zedekiah is taken captive as a result. A lot of human dynamic, a lot of human behavior here, many applications that we can find in our own lives even to this day. So that brings us to the completion of chapter 38, and when we have our next study, we will start at chapter 39. Shalom to all of you. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.